uh, we have to change the way we look at um, uh, big tech and technology. The internet uh, was meant to empower the common citizen of the world, the common habitant of the world. I think time has come back to change the web 3, 4, 5, whatever it's going to be the future to the power of being really decentralized to the, to the last person. And uh, I think we, um, there is a lot of good hope with digital public infrastructure. Um, governments across the world are realizing the benefits of it. Lastly, we need to ensure that uh, technology is not weaponized, uh, but it's used for welfare of the humankind. And it's not controlled by a few, but it's, uh, the, the governance is much better than what it is today. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the Boundaryless Conversations podcast. On this podcast, we meet with pioneers, thinkers, and doers, and we talk about the future of business models, organizations, markets, and society in this rapidly changing world that we live. Uh, today, I'm joined by my regular co-host, my colleague at Boundaryless, Shruti Prakash, who is joining from Jakarta. Hi, Shruti. Hi, everyone. Thank you so much for, for being with us today. And today with us, we also have an extraordinary guest, the one that is uh, sitting amongst the, those that are at the forefront of one of the most impressive adventures in digitally transforming uh, public infrastructure, that of India. Welcome to the co-founder and head of Digital India Foundation and member of the board of directors and advisory of Open National Digital Commerce Platform, Arvind Gupta. I hope I said it well. No, thank you, Simone and uh, Shruti, for having me. Um, uh, yes, you called it uh, called my name correct. It's Arvind, but uh, in a boundaryless world, uh, I think um, uh, every pronunciation is acceptable as long as it meets uh, the certain uh, syllables of the of the name. So. Uh, Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. As an Italian, I, I, I hear you because nobody pronounced my name well when, when I speak with English, uh, English people. Thank you so much. So, Harvind, it's, it's great to have you and uh, um, uh, we're really thankful for having your point of view today because uh, uh, you really played a tremendous role in envisioning uh, and executing as well uh, digital policy in India, which is one of the hotspots of digital innovation globally at the moment. Uh, you also previously served as a CEO of uh, uh, India's MyGov uh, platform for digital inclusion and uh, you also have experiences as venture investors, so you have broad set of experiences for, for India fund of fund uh, for startups. And so you also have been teaching at, as an adjunct uh, professor at uh, TBHU, uh, which is one of India's leading educational institutions. And you've also been a member of the World Economic Forum uh, Global Futures Council. So you really have this rich perspective that we hope uh, uh, that we can uh, convey today in the conversation. So uh, as a first question, uh, we would really love you to uh, for our listeners to paint a general picture of uh, uh, what's happening in India, why this convergence between uh, uh, the public, the private and the open sector, as we call it, it's uh, really important and how it's playing out in, in uh, uh, kind of redefining the way you do digital policy and not only policy, but you also do digital public infrastructure. So maybe just a framing would be really helpful as a start. So... Um India had a, a, a very ambitious uh, Digital India vision, which was coined by in 2014 by the new prime minister that was elected that year in one of the largest uh, elections that ever happened, a democratic process in 2014, when Prime Minister Narendra Modi took uh, charge of India. 
And in at that time, he coined that India, I see an India which will be digitized uh, from its villages to its uh, to its cities, to its colleges, to its hospitals. And the future was way back in 2014 to see how India can build its uh, own digital future. We were at that point in time and still are the leading um, outsourcing destination in the world. India produces more computer engineers than the rest of the world combined. And we had a very prominent, as I said, still do um, what is called the business process outsourcing, IT outsourcing, uh, technology services um, industry. It's almost $200 billion a year. Um, you know, we, we house in India about 1,500 uh, overseas development centers. So it's a very sizable industry. But what we realized is that in 2014, when the prime minister gave this clarion call was that can we now use technology for our internal modernization, for helping empower the poorest of the poor? And when you ask me this question, what is different about India? India's digital model is inherently built with that theme that it has to serve the bottom of the pyramid. And the bottom of the pyramid way back in 2014 had certain demographic um, uh, features. Uh, they were mostly unconnected. Their income levels were very, very, very low. Uh, a lot of them didn't have very high level of literacy. And a, a, a lot of them were senior citizens. So now given this, the traditional models, and I will comment on the traditional models uh, of, uh, of digitization, which is top down, and having worked in Silicon Valley and been an entrepreneur in Silicon Valley for many years, I can comment on that. In fact, I was at the forefront of the internet revolution when it started in the mid, uh, early 90s. So the model of the internet was democratizing access to the world. But unfortunately, over the years, what we saw is that a few platforms monopolized it. Few platforms today control, you know, probably the nine, 10 biggest platforms in the world, control 95% of the internet traffic, it's an advertising-led model. Uh, it really does not. It assumes a person has internet connectivity before it starts, you know, giving you some benefits or uh, delivering some empowerment to you. The Indian model was a fresh thinking. Can we now not look at these existing technologies or platforms only, but build our own, which will then serve the four sections of the society that really need uh, empowerment? people at large, bottom of the pyramid, the government to be able to connect directly and talk uh, more effectively and deliver services more effectively to the citizens. Three, the, the existing big businesses, telcos, banks, how can we you know, revolutionize banking or offer even lower cost internet to everybody? And fourth was this whole theme of startups. And that's where we changed uh, the paradigm. We said we can't just build more blocks on top of existing technology. We need to build our own technology. We need to build it with a purpose of having one use case, which is, and, and that is the interesting part. The first use case the government thought was how we can use identity to solve for its own problem of um, uh, seeding uh, unique identity in databases so we can remove duplicates, fakes, uh, ghosts who are availing services of the government and you know there was a huge leakage in the government services to fix that problem and certainly when we were doing that we realized that you know this has a lot of potential to do other things and that's where the first extension happened and that's where the plot platformization of what is now called india stack happened when we started building these interoperable layers of technology which is identity 
EKYC, which is paperless, and then the payments layer, and then the data layer. So this is what is called India stack. It's built with the approach bottom-up. Now, why bottom-up? Because we gave digital identity to everybody. It's a biometrically verifiable digital identity, which every Indian has. It's 1.3 plus billion Indians have an identity. And that is really the tool of empowerment because using that, you can now do EKYC. Which What is EKYC? It's electronic know your customer. Who uses that? All banks use it. The first use case that got developed using that was we gave a banking access to 480 now about 500 million people who never had a bank account before. Now this is really using digital technology for empowerment. No other, no other platform could do that uh, because they were only serving the connected. We were served, we started with how we you give uh, a bank account to somebody who's probably not even connected to the internet using assisted modes and banking correspondence and many other technologies. But the base was identity. You get, used EKYC to give them access to low cost banking. You used EKYC to give them access to the lowest cost internet in the world. And suddenly what happens, um, Simone and Shruti, is that we have from 140 million internet users in India in 2014. Today we have 900 million internet users. We have the lowest cost of data in the world from $4 a GB in 2014. It's less than 10 cents a GB today from being 155th in the, uh, in the cost of internet. Today, we are the lowest means first as the lowest cost of internet in the world. So long answer to your question, but the motivation was start with the bottom, empower them and build use technology as the first use case, because first it has to have a use case which was for government services, uh, welfare. And once that was done, we opened the technology up for banks, telcos um, to use them, people to use them for, for self-servicing, and I'll explain that. And lastly, certainly we also opened it up, open APIs that now startups could use it. What we were giving access to banks and telecom companies, we also made startups build on top of it. So it became a the essential rails to build your startup on top of it. And that is why it completely changed the model. It's not a model which is shifted in your, as you asked the question, just the private to the public. It's a model that has built public infrastructure, a road where everybody can build, including the government can build on top of it, their applications, startups can build, banks can build, telecom companies can build. And that's why it's a super success open um, case the the road does not make any money by itself or just makes enough money to sustain itself but the whole ecosystem makes uh, value creates value both in terms of serving a lot of people saving money to the government the government itself has saved we've spent probably two billion dollars in building this infrastructure and the government has saved more than 35 billion dollars already in plugging the leakages um, there's upwards of 400 billion dollars of market um, value creation in terms of the startups, in terms of the banks that have got developed around it. So, and this is this is the reason that this is a story for the world because this is a story not of building few one powerful platform. This is a story of how you can use open technology, which was the original platform uh, promise of the internet to empower every uh, section of the society. Can I? Summarize these, uh, at least this is the impression I've get, I got, is that uh, in India, uh, with the Digital India um, initiative, uh, the government said, 
you know, there is a role we have to play, which is that of creating these enabling uh, commons, okay? Uh, and uh, like, for example, identity or EKYC, uh, e why we should leave it to the private sector to build, why it's clearly a responsibility of the government to build because it's a commodity, it needs to be open, it needs to be uh, very well governed, uh, it needs to be open to everybody, it doesn't need to make to have biases or that kind of stuff. And so the impression I get is that uh, in India, uh, we have one of the few governments that took the courage to develop infrastructure, digital infrastructure, which is notoriously you know, to build these, uh, you not only need skills, understanding, you need capabilities and so on, that maybe some of the Western governments, uh, you know, if I think about Italy, for example, uh, uh, there, even if there are similar experiments coming up, but, uh, it, you know, probably in, in any place we have seen such a complete uh, approach because, uh, uh, you know, uh, you started from identity, then you moved into payments and then uh, uh, KYC and so on. And, and that enabled, as you said, you know, a financial infrastructure to be built, a telco infrastructure to be built. And now, if, if I understand well, you are moving, for example, with initiatives like ONDC, which you can maybe describe a little bit, uh, you are moving uh, um, upper in the value chain, right? Now, ONDC is about e-commerce. So maybe you can tell us a bit more of how you're moving uh, uh, upwards in the value chain, now into e-commerce, and what's also coming up in other vertical sectors, uh, as I'm sure that you see uh, the, the roadmap, you know, from your position. Absolutely, you summarized it well. But, but the key thing you have to understand is that um, originally and globally, the um, why India's model is being talked about today, uh, nine years when it started, uh, is because globally all the governments were involved in one common thing and we have to give credit, it was the access. Let's build fiber optic, let's put uh, cities, uh, give free internet and that was the aim and India has also done that. We have something called the Bharat Net which is digitizing and making sure that the internet reaches 650,000 villages of India and every village has access to low cost internet in their societies and their communities and their villages. But along with that, so that was that is something the governments across the world have done. The World Bank has supported a lot of these projects, and, and you know this this has been done by governments. The innovativeness in India's approach was to build the application layer or this digital public infrastructure, which was beyond just the connectivity, to actually open up other forms of tools and uh, interoperable APIs, which then can be used for many other things. And 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 it it started with a small success. But as you as you have asked the question, where did we go from there? We suddenly realized that we need our own. Uh, Indians are going digital, as I said, 900 million Indians on the internet today. Uh, two, they are becoming. Um, uh, you know, we are building a, a digital infrastructure um, at, at scale, at population scale, and I'll talk about what we are doing. But the largest thing that we realized that we are producing, we are the data capital of the world. We are actually building. Um, and producing diverse data in languages, uh, at income levels, gender. So if you take the diversity uh, map and look at the data diversity that we are producing and the data exhaust we are producing, it's huge. Now, suddenly we realize that, you know, when people were coining the terms data is the new oil or data is uh, whatever else, we said how we can now use data for empowerment. So to answer your question, of course, put some controls on the kind of data that uh, platforms can seek from consumers uh, to protect their own privacy and their own um, 
provide them empowerment of their own data. Uh, but beyond that, we realize that this data can be used for credit, health, for multiple things. And that is the next thing that we have done, for example. Uh, we have built on top of these three things which we talked about, identity, KYC, and payments. And I'll talk about payments also. Um, we have built the what is called the DEPA layer. It's called the data empowerment and protection architecture. Now, what this does is the first manifestation of this uh, this technology is the build the next DPI is called account aggregator. So now suppose you have multiple accounts, uh, uh, credit, debit, bank accounts. You can combine all of them and give a single view to a bank about what monies you are receiving, what monies you are you know, spending, how is money coming in, how it's going out using the DEPA architecture and to another OSIN through a marketplace model called Open Credit Enablement Network, you can actually say I'm looking for a credit for $300 overnight working capital credit, small traders. Uh, so far, they would get a very expensive credit. Now, they can use their data to announce to the world that they're looking for credit and then the people who are interested can actually use that data and can give you instant credit and, and that is how it's empowering people. So it's one stack is the India stack that we talked about. On top of the India stack, we've also, also built the data uh, layer. So it's a complete stack now. A parallel stack using this is now called the account aggregator or the open credit uh, enablement network. That's the second stack that is available. And we believe that in, in India, we will be able to give democratized credit to 20 times more than what we do today. And, and micro credit, credit, which is, as I said, $200, $300. Otherwise, the cost of fulfillment of that credit, acquiring the customer and then fulfilling the credit is so high that nobody gives such low amount of credit. But with this, you can give instantaneous credit and then monitor it, receive it back and, you know, and, and then do open, uh, a credit rating and everything else. So um, and credit is big, uh, my friends. Let me tell you, globally, it's a very big problem access to credit to the to the uh, small enterprises to small business uh, men and women to small traders is is a big challenge and the cost of credit is so high for them that you cannot imagine one story i missed out that i think needs a mention is india's uh, the payments uh, network it's called upi the unified payments interface now this is another story it did uh, about 10 billion transactions last month 300 million indians participate in making a digital payment. You can pay as little as 10 cents. I mean, actually lower than that at zero cost. Now, why this is a story? Because this has really empowered people, um, cashless, less cash society. It's aided by right policies. And, you know, today this is the talk of the world. You can have the German uh, digital minister coming into India, scanning a barcode and not worried about which app they have or not it's it's completely interoperable they're able to make a 10 cent payment and the other person is actually more happy to receive it because of the credit uh, that i talked about because they're living a digital footprint and they want they know that that digital footprint has a value in in the future in get, giving them credit i have been enlightened so much when we talk to some of these small consumer uh, uh, small traders and small really mom and pop shops they say sir you don't have upi you're going to pay me in cash. You seem to be an intelligent person. You seem to be an educated person. Why are you not using UPI to pay money? When people tell you on the road, you feel proud.
And, and that is what has changed completely in India. It's unlike any other country in the world, any other society in the world we have seen because everywhere else, either those are closed networks. So if you have a, a, a wallet from X, you can only make payment on X or you have to have very high expensive uh, POS machines or devices or NFC. This requires nothing. And you can pay, you can pay on voice, you can pay on uh, just a smartphone, you can pay on a non-smartphone. Uh, it is enabled for everything. And that is what has completely changed um, the payments uh, story globally. Everybody is looking out for it. The big companies are threatened by it uh, because, you know, their business model has been disrupted of uh, rent seeking. This is the complete story of India stack that how from providing access to applications, to startups, to government disruption, to payments disruption, how it has caused that and, and linking it with credit into the future. Now, 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 let's talk even more future. You talked about ONDC, which is what is a work in progress right now. We are building it as we go, as we are talking. It's about a year ago that we did our first real-time transaction and uh, almost 380 days into, into the platform, we are doing almost, uh, you know, 100 and uh, what, about 4, 4 million uh, transactions a month now. And that's that's a lot. Uh, to, uh, but in India, the aspiration is not 4 million. The aspiration is, you know, 40 million in the next six months and then go to 400 million, like the way we have done 10 billion in UPI. So we want to uh, scale up. But what this ONDC does is it disintermediates e-commerce. Three ways. Seller, buyer, logistics provider. All three different. You don't need to be on the same platform to buy and sell. So as a seller, I can announce that I have these 100 things to sell. And as a buyer can come on a messenger or WhatsApp or any other payment system and say, I'm looking for something. So the payment app is not worried about building a seller network. The seller network is not worried about customer acquisition. And they can exist in different systems, but can talk to each other. Again, the promise of the internet and actually do this transaction. And the third party, which is a logistics partner, comes in, picks it up from the seller and delivers it to the buyer. Now, this is the simple disintermediation that ONDC is doing. But what does it do? It actually creates so much of value because you're not taking the 25, 30% commission from the seller to service a buyer. Now you can service the same transaction at five, 6%. And, and still the buyer can make money because they, they already have the buyers. The sellers are focused on just sellers. So they're not focused on uh, acquiring customers because customers exist somewhere else. The customer, wherever the customers exist, they monetize their customers by giving them more options. The, the sellers uh, focus on sellers and everybody is happy because you, you know, overall cost is not 30% to the platform. It's probably 5%. So it's a 20, 25% overall saving to the whole ecosystem. Both the consumer is happy, probably gets better pricing. So basically, it is empowering the whole consumer base, the, the seller base, the traders, the small businessmen. It's bringing more people who have never sold online, digital first uh, can, uh, sellers online because they now don't, are not afraid to, uh, to say, hey, you know, it's uh, what we had heard. We are going to end up paying um, uh, 20, 30 percent commissions to these platforms and we don't need to do that. So we are going to do that. A lot of restaurants and all these cloud kitchens, we were, which were actually technically just monopolized by uh, some of the uh, food delivery platforms are coming on board. So uh, ONDC is a 
effort to really democratize e-commerce, decouple the three components of it, and actually set up a new um, thinking. It is also because of uh, success of the past that we are very confident that we, we can do this. It's more complex. But the last bit I want to explain to you, this is very exciting. With the payments that I explained to you, 10 billion payment transactions that we do, we get payment level information. With ONDC now, we'll get SKU level information. What does SKU means? Now, what has that, not how much you're selling, but exactly what you're selling. So you see now the data play will become even more interesting. You will actually get a much more richer data and that will have even more value in, in predicting many things, doing a lot of data analytics and, uh, and credit and other things. So, I think the points you've mentioned, right, some of these words that stood out to me, obviously India being a diverse data capital and the whole shift towards maybe open networks, right? Like we have the ONDC, OCE and, and so on. So with all of this shift happening, how does the open governance come into play? So how do you ensure that all of the citizens are openly participating in such initiatives and to ensure that at the end of the day, let's say the um, ownership of this data and what it means is to empower back the citizens, right? So how do you ensure that people come in, participate and all of this data that's been collected, how does that trickle back into every citizen in India? So Shruti, you have asked three questions and I, I must uh, tell you that some of your questions are wrong. Okay, <laughs> please, yes. Because you're, asking, you're mixing three issues. Mm -hmm. Number one is you're talking about governance from how the government do, uses technology to do governance. Two is how do we govern these networks? How do we govern these technologies that we are building? There are two different aspects. Number one, let me start with the second. Technology succeeds, uh, digital succeeds, but it also needs the right organizational design to succeed. The organizational design that we have is in all these uh, entities, whether it is NPCIL, which governs UPI, or whether it is uh, uh, the account aggregator, which is governed by RBI, or whether it is the ONDC, which is a separate company, we have set up separate entities in a public-private partnership, non-profits. These are called Section 8 companies in India. These are non-profits. The government has less than 50% stake. Another 50% stake is all the stakeholders, ecosystem players in the, in the industry. Now the board comprises of representatives of the government and all these are the participants. So when you have a governance board, which is a fairly independent industry-centric board, then you have better governance. And as it is by design, all these platforms, whether it's UPI or whether it's ONDC or OSEN, you know, they have a consultative approach. Everything is made open uh, for consultations. Everybody comes together, criticizes, gives feedback, and then the network is developed, technology is developed, policies are developed and codified. And it is codified in design. So all, all the policies are also codified in the technology so that, you know, the governance is evident. It's very transparent. There is no, if I lack of a better word, hidden switches or hidden backdoors. Now that was your question number two. Your question number one was, how does the government ensure that it reaches the last mile? That's through communication. That's through awareness. That's through sharing uh, the success stories. But also you have to understand in a society like India, which is again a very diverse society, and you said you do belong to India, people are smart enough 
to understand what what is in their own benefit they figured out that upi you can transfer money without an agent from bihar to kerala and from tamil nadu to haryana or you know from punjab to uh, kashmir they don't need to spend money to uh, to give to an agent to transfer money so they figured it out themselves and they use it right it was of course the startups do their own outreach and the government does its own outreach but the consumer is very smart once they figure out that they save money doing this they figure it out faster than you and me do because for them saving that 100 rupees a month is more important than uh, uh, drink, uh, drinking expensive cup of coffee that is the biggest lesson so the government does its own outreach i am not saying that government has done a lot of outreach a lot of money has been spent by the government a uh, indirect question you had is how does the government ensure that uh, its own governance and i talked about there are four or five pillars four pillars of beneficiaries of technology the government has benefited by using a program called the direct benefits transfer 900 million people in india avail of a benefit of the government of india that's where this deduplication and the, the direct linking of the bank account to the mobile number and the identity number the aadhar number happens and so automatically transfers happen over you know over a two days period to all these beneficiaries in india people just receive an sms saying money has been transferred to your bank account small or big scholarships um you know maternity benefits nutrition benefits all come directly um 900 million people three three and a half four times the population of indonesia uh three times the population of usa Yes, 18 times uh, the population of the uh, Italy. So that is how much governance the government does using technology. The last question, sorry, what was that? The third point you, uh, third or the fourth point you said about, uh, uh, or I don't know whether you have any more questions, but I, I think I kind of uh, addressed all of it. No, I think you touched upon all of it, and I think I've seen a lot of these unfold myself. Right, being in India, I've seen the impact that digital India has had, and it's been. you know interesting one of the other points that you mentioned right like which stood out was that you said that these points sort of trickled down to the last um, you know person in india and i was thinking about points like reverse migration which is happening now like tier 3 and 4 have so many um, you know let's say citizens who are living there more people are shifting from tier 1s and 2s to 3 and 4 and yeah it's been very interesting to see all of this transpire I think you made a, a very important remark uh, that is uh, you don't just need the technology but you also need the organizational structure right and you mentioned this uh, uh, more specifically uh, with regards to the governance element you spoke about for example how the government has invested a lot in communicating this uh, which is part of the growth strategy of any initiative So in general I my my question around ONDC uh, which you know for our listeners uh, as Arvin said is more like a a disintermediation network that allows e-commerce not to be uh, centralized into one platform but rather have several players in the ecosystem to originate transactions then fulfill transaction in a cross border setting and you also are an entrepreneur you you have been working with startups so you know how it works how do you as a public player overcome two typical problems that you have when you have to bring something new to the market one is the capability side so how do you have the talent needed 
to uh, bring a, a product like this to the market. Also in Conway's low perspective, so how do you organize to actually do not just the governance, but also the go-to-market initiative, the marketing, the uh, ecosystem development, and so on. Don't you believe that uh, uh, the uh, private, let's say, uh, centralized platforms uh, still have a massive advantage uh, in terms of uh, uh, how they create these revenues that you talked about and can reinvest these revenues into innovation to lure uh, uh, customers in and uh, create, uh, uh, even if not democratic, at least they create these uh, appealing alternatives to a digitally uh, public-powered uh, or democratically owned and managed alternative. Uh, let me comment on all of that. Capability. Let's start with capability, building the organization, building people. Biggest challenge, my friend. Never easy to find good people anywhere in the world. Especially when, uh, when uh, there's a lot of um, uh, uh, money at play. We have built these organizations on a good combination um, of market uh, salaries. I'm not saying above market salaries, but uh, and that is the independence we get having separate companies, but also on a commitment around passion and building for the society and nation at large. So, uh, so there is a combination of that. It's not that we are on the higher end of salaries or even above median. We're probably median or below median uh, when it comes to equivalent roles. But uh, finding talent is very, very difficult. Uh, but it helps that we have done this before. We've done uh, UPI, we have done in, uh, Aadhaar, we have done KYC, DigiLocker, uh, DEPA, we have done this before, so it helps. But also it helps as India, as I explained to you, is the largest uh, talent density of uh, techno-enabled uh, uh, people. But finding the right set of people is always always the right, uh, it's a challenge, but we are, we've been lucky enough to do that. A lot of, lot of uh, individuals have seconded themselves, taken sabbaticals, and they come and join the project. And finally, and gender neutral, uh, you only need 30 good people to solve a large problem. See, the ecosystem takes over. The core is probably about, you know, 30, 40 good engineers. And every of our department, we probably have six, six to seven departments in, let's say, ONDC, so about 200 people. And uh, each of them are manned at best by 30, 35 people. We also don't believe in uh, having an army of people to, uh, to solve a problem. Technology teaches us that you don't need thousands and thousands of people to do it. And that's where our costs are low. That's where we have, you know, uh, you hit the hammer accurately on the nail rather than just spraying and praying. So on the marketing side, we've done this before. You know, we popularized UPI post demonetization. Uh, we popularized GST post the, you know, GST is the indirect tax in India post GST. I think we've done this before. I'm not saying we have a perfect playbook, but we have a playbook. So we know how to do this. And, and again, in all these projects, um, there are some common people. And that is another lesson we have learned is keep few constant set of people in all these projects. So uh, we have done this before. Uh, we are repeating the same. Uh, you know, we're learning from the past. We're building new learnings, but we, uh, we've done this before. So we have a, a semi-cooked playbook if you can use that word, uh, we're innovating on top of it. How to go to market? How do you do hackathons? How do you get the ecosystem involved? How do you get everybody excited in doing so? And then lastly, you talked about centralized platforms and their power, their, you know, their financial power is too strong. Uh, I only can say, yes, we need everybody to exist. I mean, I'm not saying one, 
one platform it's the consumer who will choose not it's not you and me who will decide what will succeed and what will not upi success is because it's consumer driven it's people driven people find it easy to use uh, people find it uh, shopkeepers find it easy to use and receive their money in real time and without paying the rent seeking costs the 2% and 1% costs so it finally is uh, open market economics that will work and consumer economics will work so finally consumer will decide a lot of these platforms have tons of money and uh, you know their investments are also welcome so they can keep doing that they're increasing we're all increasing the pie it's not one against the other right now it's, it's you're expanding the market and a great example of that is when india had um, only you know let's say the the credit cards being issued by a few companies and a payment systems being used uh, only being by used by a few companies we probably had a a payment usage by 50 million people today more than 400 million people use some sort of a digital payment or the other so you have expanded the market uh, some of it happened organically and some of it happened inorganically because of availability of easy technology same thing will happen e-commerce is probably just about 80 to 100 million people use e-commerce we believe this number will go up to 300 million in the next few years so you know the new consumer has to find it very easy to use it voice um just say something and buy it um on a messenger on a chatbot so you know uh, there is there's a lot of evolution that will happen and then eventually we don't also believe in india it's going to be winner takes it all we don't think that there's going to be one or two winners is we believe that there will be a market place of um, three or four big players including the ondc led players and that's what we've seen in payments that's what we've seen in credit and that's what we're going to see in e-commerce also it how has the private sector sort of reacted to all of this how have they accommodated to this especially if we're seeing you know interest coming in from private platforms and let's say these interfaces that are being built through policy um when it's being implemented to a certain degree where a number of people are adopting it you know sort of enforced at some level right so i want to understand how does the private sector react to this it's a tough question there is a diff- you if your question is private sector as in people who are not participants in e-commerce themselves the current existing incumbent platforms they react differently so this the all the other 99.9% private sector which will benefit from it reacts differently including startups and banks and telecom companies and everybody else so um the incumbents are designed are programmed to resist right always because i always believe that you know if you don't uh, incumbents need to understand innovation will disrupt them right the taxi drivers uh, should have seen the ubers coming and and you know the olas and the ubers coming and disrupting them or the grabs or whatever else the names are across the world it's not that their business models will get completely gone some of them may evaporate i mean landline is gone today everybody uses a mobile right so there will be certain technologies that will disappear certain people will become coexistent in the in the ecosystem and i think that's what the incumbents need to understand that you know whether they embrace innovation and become coexistent in that that's what the taxi guys did by the way they initially resisted it they understood it but they, they said this is a change that is inevitable because the consumers want it and the consumers could see the benefit of using app based taxi services so then the what they did taxi guys did they started developing their own ecosystems So now you can book a taxi like the way you book an Uber 
um, using an app. You can use free now or you can use many other. I mean, I use this, so I only know that. That's what you do, right? So that's a great example, actually. On the other hand, you have a lot of big platforms. They have a lot of money. They will have to figure out uh, whether they just exist on their own or they, they co-work or co-innovate. Uh, time will tell. I don't have the right answer for that today, but time will tell. And do you, Arvind, uh, do you believe that in the future there may be a moment where um, these kind of policies, as Shirdi was saying, these kind of interfaces are actually enforced on the market? So uh, as I understand at the moment, that this is not uh, um, an enforced policy. It's more like uh, creating an alternative that, uh, as you said, uh, needs to perform great, needs to attract uh, on the basis of uh, the great user experience that offers. Are you maybe thinking of in the future Uh, that the government can actually say, you know, if you are doing e-commerce in India, you have to be compliant with ONDC. Or if you are doing credit, you have to be compliant with OSIN. Okay, so the government of India believes in choices. We are not a monopolist. We are a free economy. And uh, we believe that there is, uh, I mean, everybody can exist. But there, so we have Visa MasterCard also existing in India. As much as UPI is. Right? American Express also operates. I mean, they have their own audiences, they serve that audience and they have learned to innovate. So we are not going to have a diktat any time which says, okay, you know, this is the only way to do it. But yes, uh, where we find financial benefit both to the consumer and to the government, we will promote. This conversation has really uh, pushed a lot to this idea that governments have... Uh, Uh, their own responsibility, right, to contribute to the ecosystem, you know, taking this role. Uh, also, you said something very interesting when you said uh, you don't need so many people. You, you just need 30 great people to, great, to make great initiatives. That is a testament to the democratization of innovation that is happening at the moment uh, uh, all over the world. So maybe if you have to kind of look a little bit into the future, Maybe if you can give us a little bit of an overview of what do you believe is coming up beyond commerce, uh, of course, you know, beyond identity, payments, commerce and credit, what's coming up? And on the other hand, uh, as a second question, how do you believe that uh, uh, these approaches are, um, you know, constitute a strategic element of how India is playing its, its own role in the global ecosystem. So, for example, how these type of infrastructures will attract business from the outside or create opportunities for cross-border collaborations and, in general, augment the influence that India has worldwide thanks to its uh, digital infrastructures. Let me give you some haphazard answers. It means in no order. The payment system India has already offered and is working with 22 countries. Already in place. It's not Uh, on, on paper or something, it's actually working, operating, Singapore, Middle East, a lot of neighboring countries. So you can, you can use that. Not only that, India has offered as part of its G20 presidency, the, um, you know, the One Future Alliance is to offer these technologies to all willing countries uh, in, a, in a partnership mode. Means they will co-own it. It's not something that we will have a backdoor on. We'll share this technology with them. They can co-develop it, co-own it and run it. As the Prime Minister has announced, India has uh, the approach of uh, solve for India, share with the world. And that is really the testimony that if it works in India, with the diversity, with the complexity of India, I think the rest of the world is assured that it will work in their society, their country. Because I think no country can be as complex in terms of scale as well as complexity as India. So 
that is what I think has been the biggest outcome of the digital public infrastructure uh, thinking over the last one year during India's G20 presidency. And, and that's the reason you and me are talking today, because this is a new lexicon, digital public infrastructure. Who talked about it three years ago when I wrote the first Harvard paper, people didn't know what we are talking about. Right. So today we have a consensus. What is digital public infrastructure? Today, we, the world is talking about it. Lastly, what's the future? Now, that's a very difficult question. I can't predict the future five, ten years down the road. I'm not George Orwell. Uh, but I can tell you that uh, India is going to lead the AI, ethical and responsible AI uh, development throughout the world. We are going to lead, lead the inclusive AI. I'm, and let me give an example. You know, the world doesn't speak one language, which is English. We speak multiple languages. Indians, only 14% of Indians understand English. 86% don't. We, we need to understand voice. 30-40% people in the world cannot type write English or write whatever language. So they, they need to understand voice is going to be a big, big, big future. So can you do voice commands? Voice, and I know a lot of big companies are working on it, but India is developing its own voice stack. How voice can be used ethically in a correct manner, in a diverse manner to really empower citizens. Second is ethical and responsible AI, non-weaponization of technology. This is the things that we are going to see in the future and India is leading these efforts. Um, small, uh, things like cryptocurrency, um, blockchain is for good, let's use blockchain. Let's not confuse cryptocurrency as these private cryptos to you know, solve for the financial inclusion problem. But we need blockchain, we need CBDC, central bank digital currencies for interoperability in the future for cross-border payments. So there is a lot of these things that I see over the next two to three years. As I said, I cannot predict 10 years down the road, but three years, this is the probably three, four areas that I believe that uh, India is going to lead and the world is going to see uh, these developments happen and rallying around India. And agile policy making, very, very important fifth point. So. I'm, I'm curious if you see anything coming up on the energy and mobility sectors, which are very much uh, on the spot, uh, under the spot today, if I think about energy, for of example. Course, of course, India is already leading the One Solar Alliance. I only talked about one of the mega trends, the AI ML mega trend. There is a second is a green energy mega trend, which I have not talked about in this conversation. And then there is a supply chain, uh, the supply chain plus, the new China plus, the supply chain plus, the new supply chain uh, movements, resilience and movements that are happening. And the fourth is human longevity. So I call these four mega trends that are happening in the world. Uh, AI ML mega trend, the supply chain mega trend, the green energy transition and the uh, human longevity uh, mega trend. So I have not talk about, talked about the other three. We can kind of concentrated within the AI ML which has digital public infrastructure built into it. You mentioned crypto. Uh, do you see really uh, the need for uh, uh, this uh, third space uh, that the uh, crypto ledgers uh, allow? So this idea that you can create uh, um, these kind of middlewares between parties that are uh, based on crypto technology, crypto, cryptographic technologies to ensure that they have trust for all parties really playing out. So let's be very careful in the terminology. Number one, blockchain. Anything that is built around blockchain using cryptography, which is better encryption, is okay, welcome. There is some, going to be some regulation around encryption and things like that. But, you know, um, anything that uses fundamentally the blockchain technology. I'm not going to confuse that with cryptocurrency. My, our problems are with cryptocurrency. We need a uniform harmonization of policies around cryptocurrency. 
and anything that is, is central bank digital currencies which are backed by central banks is going to be the future so just to give you my cons- uh, um, context again that's why i repeated Okay, cool. Uh, so as we close the conversation, I would like to ask you a couple of uh, breadcrumbs for our listeners. So anything that you want to suggest to maybe uh, get deeper in understanding what our digital public infrastructures are, why they are important, or more generally, since you have such a broad, let's say, experience and, and point of view, anything that you believe our listeners should catch up with uh, based on your uh, um, you know, wealth of knowledge. I think um, we, uh, we have to s- change the way we look at um, uh, big tech and technology. The internet uh, was meant to empower the common citizen of the world, the common habitant of the world. I think time has come back to change the web 3, 4, 5, whatever it's going to be in the future to the power of being really decentralized to the, to the last person. And uh, I think we, um, there is a lot of good hope with digital public infrastructure, um, governments across the world are realizing the benefits of it. Lastly, we need to ensure that uh, technology is not weaponized, uh, but it's used for welfare of the humankind. And it's not controlled by a few, but it's uh, the, the governance is much better than what it is today. Thank you so much. Uh, so again, thank you so much also, Shruti, for being with us today and with your questions. Thank you. Thanks, Aravind, especially for joining. It was great having you on the podcast. Yeah, I hope you also enjoyed the conversation, Aravind. Thank you very much. It was great to, to have you. So for our listeners, um, uh, check out our uh, website, boundaries.io slash podcast. You will find Arvind's episode with all the notes, the links to all the fantastic technologies we discussed. And uh, uh, until we speak again, uh, remember to think boundaryless.